Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Origin Story. In each episode, we take a word, idea or figure from history, explain its origins and talk about how it influences political discourse today. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And I'm Ian Dunt. I'm the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't and I'm a columnist for the Iron Newspaper. Today, I really tried to just do it in a Dorian way, in yeah. a really kind of like, like water. Yeah. But now you've ruined it by drawing attention to it. <laughs> Uh, for the last episode of season four, we'll be explaining something from very recent history, effective altruism. And I think this is something new for us because it's so topical. On 2nd of November, you might have known, Sam Bankman-Fried, the former CEO of the failed cryptocurrency exchange FTX, was convicted on seven counts of fraud and conspiracy and faces up to 50 years in jail. As well as being a signature villain of the crypto boom, Bankman-Fried was one of the world's richest and most influential members of the effective altruist movement, a philosophy of philanthropy based on utilitarianism, i.e. doing the maximum amount of good. Now, having a fraudster as the face of your idealistic movement is suboptimal. Uh, the effective altruists have gone a bit quiet. Um, but William McCaskill, the Oxford University philosopher who invented it, tweeted after the FTX collapse, I don't know which emotion is stronger, my utter rage at Sam and others, question mark, for causing such harm to so many people, or my sadness and self-hatred for falling for this deception. Okay, so we're going to be asking, how did a niche philosophical idea become a multi-billion dollar movement implicated in a giant scam? Ian, how closely had you been following either Sam Bankman-Fried or effective altruism in recent years? Not very, partly because the crypto thing I find incredibly alienating. So whenever it comes on, I'm just like, no, I don't want to. I'm, I'm pretty sure this is a Ponzi scheme and it's a load of bollocks, but I know that it would take quite a lot of effort to actually right. understand why. So I just want to keep that shit away you from You once me. suggested doing crypto as a topic. Yes, I did. I did. And I was like, I can't. <laughs> I just... But we're sort of, we're doing crypto adjacent. And effective altruism, was that something you were... Yeah, it popped up for me a little bit a while back, and I found it quite a seductive idea and a really quite compelling idea. And that, with some pretty heavy caveats, is still pretty much where I'm at, having yeah. spent some time looking into it. Yeah, this is not, I think, uh, I mean, there are villains in this episode, but it's not a villains episode. No. Uh, in, in the way that some of them have been. Related to this is another idea which I guess could be like a separate mini topic. We're going to do it at the same time. Long-termism. In his book, What We Owe the Future, McCaskill defines it as the view that positively influencing the long-term future is a key moral priority of our time. This is not where effective altruism started, but it's where it is now, and it's tied up with a study of existential risk. 
Are you feeling the same way about these guys uh, as I am at the moment? Your instinctive thing after a few days. Yeah, no, I'm fascinated by uh, the good. The intentions are clearly good. Not Sam Bankman Freed's. Sure. But the intentions of people like William Caskell are clearly idealistic and they're thoughtful and they're, you know, surprisingly nuanced. Mm. But once you get into the, the long-termist phase, I do think things get more complicated. We will explain the kind of morality of long-termism later. But, you know, I mean, bear in mind that our good friend Elon Musk is a long-termist when he talks about the dangers of killer AI and moving to Mars and so on. And so it's not an uncomplicated idea. And it's obviously made a huge difference to the direction of the movement. And, you know, some say that Sam Bankman-Fried would not have done what he did had he not been so devoted to his understanding, at least, of effective altruism and long-termism. So it's one of those things where it's like, is it a financial scandal involving a guy who happened to believe a bunch of stuff, right? Sometimes you have a financial scandal where the culprit, he might be Christian or he might be Jewish or right. he might be, you yeah. know, conservative or, or liberal. And that's not really why they did it. They did it because they were greedy. They didn't do it because they had a particular cause. Whereas here, you know, it has been suggested that it was the corrupting effect of a certain understanding of this idea that led him to take these enormous risks. And we're going to sort of unpack some of that. Perhaps surprisingly, the OED has no entry for effective altruism or long-termism in this context. But never mind, because who needs them? <laughs> I can tell you that the phrase effective altruism was coined in 2011 through a vote by uh, directors of two charitable organizations which merged into the Center for Effective Altruism led by McCaskill. I, I've decided that I don't like well, how happy with yourself when that, you get to role play as the OED. OED. I can tell you today. I can tell you today as a walking dictionary. Uh, the word long-termism, meanwhile, in this sense, was coined around 2017 by McCaskill and his Australian colleague Toby Ord. Although, as we'll see, the idea goes back decades. It's not the case where the idea and the word appear at the same time by any stretch. Let's begin. The story of effective altruism has two phases. There's the near-termist era and the long-termist, which is neatly summed up by McCaskill's two books, Doing Good Better from 2015 and What We Owe the Future from 2022. The titles sort of tell you this mm. kind of shift in priorities. William McCaskill was born William David Crouch in Glasgow in 1987. He changed his surname based on his um, ex-wife's maiden name. So in the early days of EA, he was known as uh, William Crouch. When he was 15, moved by the plight of people with AIDS, he decided to become a wealthy novelist and give away half his money, which is such an endearing idea of how to get rich. <laughs> Literary fiction. Uh, he volunteered with the elderly, with disabled children. He spent some time in Ethiopia and studying philosophy at Cambridge University. He had that familiar period of shopping around for meaning in his life that, you know, even Jordan Peterson had. Mm. Well, you try socialism, you try green campaigning, you, you kind of think, well, what, what, what am I looking for? What am I going to be in the world? And then he found the philosophical scaffolding for this impulse in Famine, Affluence and Morality, a 1972 essay by the Australian moral philosopher Peter Singer, a utilitarian. Ian, you have written about utilitarianism. Oh, very little. And where does... Oh, brilliant, <laughs> brilliant. Don't get your hopes up. <laughs> like, where, well, like, where does Singer's version fit in? Like, are there lots of different kinds of utilitarians and he is just one? Is he an extreme example? 
What's the argument? Not particularly. Um, and yeah, there, there are loads of different kinds. I guess the way to put this is um, we all think we know what morality is. And we go around in our lives, and if I'm writing a column on politics, I'll be like, that's wrong because he lied. Or you'll hear someone in the pub going, my mate owes me a fiver, and that's wrong, you know, because he hasn't paid me back. We always think that morality is quite a clear-cut issue. And one of the things that happens when you look into morality is that everything goes horribly fucking wrong and things stop making sense very, very quickly indeed. There are two main schools. There's more than this, but there's two chief schools of moral philosophy that try to make sense of, of our view of morality. The first one is called consequentialism. It's basically just that you can assess the morality of an action by its consequences. Yeah. Um, utilitarianism is a form of that. Yeah. Uh, and it, I mean, the chief proponent, the p first person you think of is, is Jeremy Bentham, who would look at sort of, you know, human experience on a scale between sort of pleasure and suffering, and you're trying to increase utility, you're trying to increase pleasure and reduce suffering. And pretty much everyone is a utilitarian at some point, you know? So the classic thought experiment for this is uh, the trolley. So let's imagine that you're on a rail tracks, you're waiting there, there's a train that's completely out of control. It's veering down towards you and you're by the sort of stick shift thing that sort of changes the tracks. Uh, it's about to hit a family of five further down the track. You're weirdly in this thought experiment strapped to the tracks <laughs> by some old Penelope pit stop villain. I never imagined it. I always imagined that they were on the platform. No, no, no. And it was just no, going to smash into the No, no. If you bit. see the illustrations, they're tied to the tracks. Okay, like I think with all of these thought experiments, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's worth not digging too hard into what they would entail. Um, mm. You can hit that stick and it's going to kill one guy that's on the other side of the tracks. Um, what is morally correct? And most people will say, you hit the stick, it kills one person because it's better for one person to die than five. Which is the consequentialist. Doug. This is the consequentialist position. It will be the utilitarian position. This is the classic. And it makes an awful lot of sense, right? The trouble is that once you start following these ideas through to their conclusion, you very quickly start coming up with some very, very mucky conclusions indeed. So, for instance, what would you do, you know, at the outbreak of uh, the AIDS crisis? Would you start saying, well, let's build a concentration camp for gay men? You know, you might be able to show that by consequence, that would be the correct thing to do. But it feels like that's innately an immoral thing. It's also weird for our sense of who we are. So one of the classic thought experiments with this is the boat. You're in a boat with your mum and a scientist who can cure cancer, who could potentially cure cancer sometime in the future. The boat is sinking and you can save one person. Who do you save? It follows from the utilitarian position that you save the scientist, yeah. right? Because that's the greatest good for the greatest number. Um, Bernard Williams, the British philosopher, did probably the most damage to utilitarianism in his assessment of that thought experiment by saying, if you considered saving the scientist, you've just had, quote, one thought too many. Which, by the way, yeah. like the point that a philosopher tells you that you're thinking too much is really when you need to go home and just think about what the fuck you're doing with your life. So the other school of thought, which is the one that says, save your mum, um, don't pull the lever because that implicates you in the murder of this other one. It's called deontology. Yeah. And this is the view that our morality should be based on rules and principles. And the, the sort of forefather of all this is Immanuel Kant. 
And the kind of rules that he'd be thinking of is that humans are ends, not means. So for instance, if someone then says, we get to torture this person because we might get information for a terrorist attempt later, you'd be like, no, you can't do that because humans are ends, not means. There's a moral rule there. If we were to say we're going to put gay people in internship camps, you know, to prevent the spread of AIDS, you say, no, you, you can't do that. So the means justify the ends is the very crude caricature of consequences. Exactly. And the trouble is that with that secondary view, you also go a bit mad. So let's say that Anne Frank is hiding in your house during the war and the police come around, the Nazis come around. Can you lie to the Nazis? And most people want to say, yes, of course you can. But a deontologist, from a pure perspective, would say, no, you can't because you're breaking a moral rule, which is do not lie. You know, the consequences right. don't matter. So, But either way, this is the funny thing, right? You can look at we all, as individuals and as societies, have a mixture of these two things in our head, of a consequentialist and deontological perspective. So there's kind of two approaches to moral philosophy. You can basically just say, let's join the dots of our intuition. This story is primarily about the concept of intuition. Let's just join the dots and see what we get from that. But the trouble is, our intuitions are completely inconsistent. The other way of looking at it is to say, no, we come up with these abstract right. intellectual ideas and fuck your intuition. You know, no matter how weird it seems, that's what we'll do. In other words, we will become, if you're on the utilitarian side, the kind of person who saves the scientist. We will become on the deontological side, the kind of person who sacrifices Anne Frank. The story that we're telling today is about people who very much signed up to the fuck your intuitions school of thought. So Singer's essay is actually, it's very cunning because it does play to your intuitions. It was inspired by yes, a, a yes. terrible famine in, in East Bengal and the developed world sent aid, but not nearly enough to save the lives that could have been saved. So Singer proposes a famous thought experiment. You're walking past a lake, you see a child uh, drowning. Do you dive in to save the child, even if you mess up your clothes? And your answer was obviously no, because you're so fond of your leather jacket. Um, I mean, I really, as you've seen, I don't dress that well. So, <laughs> so like most people who are not, you know, sociopaths would say, of course, of course you do. So Singer says you should think the same way about a child suffering from disease and poverty in another country. And he says that spending money on superfluous goods instead of donating it to organizations trying to reduce child mortality is tantamount to allowing that child to drown to save your clothes. Like, why not donate the price of you know, the dry cleaning bill or replacing your shoes. And he writes, it makes no moral difference whether the person I can help is a neighbor's child 10 yards from me or a Bengali whose name I shall never know 10,000 miles away. And for decades, this was a bit of an Aunt Sally, that it would be given to philosophy students to sort of go why this rather uh, seductive and, and, and unidealistic logic, um, you know, doesn't work. William McCaskill reads it and he thinks it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Right? He's like, well, of course. Yeah. These guys are almost defined by all those things that are given to first year philosophy undergraduates to show now what has gone wrong here yeah. to reach a utilitarian conclusion. They're actually like, nothing's gone wrong. They've just thought about this really systematically. Yeah. You know. So he's, uh, he's an undergrad at Cambridge, then earns a BPhil and DPhil at Oxford, um, eventually becomes the world's youngest associate philosopher professor at the age of 28. Again, one of those people you read about where it's just slightly shaming. <laughs> uh, I was not the world's youngest anything at 28. So as a grad student, he decides to give away as much money as he could, hardly spend anything on himself. He says this made him quite annoying mm -hmm. to go to the pub with. <laughs> quite, he liked to sneak in a can of lager 
But even now, like he lives with roommates in a flat, um, lives off the, the figures vary, but like the highest I've seen is like 26 grand, mm-hmm. which is, you know, considerably less than he's earning. I mean, philosophy is not like a big money game. Nonetheless, no, but he, walks he it like in, he talks it. And he's influential enough among people with lots of money that I think this man could be rich right now if he wanted to. Yeah. You know, that, uh, you cannot hold against these guys that they are absolutely living in their personal lives, at least in this case, up to the ideals that they espouse. Not hypocrites. No, crucial. Uh, in 2009, when he's 22, he's introduced to Toby Ord, an Australian philosophy postgrad, eight years older. And Ord has written dissertations on uh, utilitarianism, consequentialism, because he's from a maths background as well. He sort of crunches the numbers for various interventions using a unit um, you've probably heard of called the Quality Adjusted Life Year or QALY, yeah. which is one year of life at perfect health. And this is used by the National Institute of Clinical Excellence to decide which medical treatments to fund. And of course, it's very controversial. Um, and can seem to penalise people who have sort of disabilities because, you know, their qualities are not as strong. Um, so it, it's a controversial idea, but it's quite an effective one in certain contexts. And quite widely used. Yeah, it's not a niche thing. It's also important, I think, for utilitarianism, right? Because like back in the day with Bentham, you'd have things like just sort of pleasure units. So once you've got kind of pleasure units, you just sort of like... Pleasure unit well, sounds many... like a futuristic sex machine, doesn't <laughs> it? Does. I never want to hear you use that <laughs> phrase again, but yes. Well, then you sort of, well, obviously you just get into it like, well, how many packets of Walker's crisps equals romantic love? You know, you, it's, it's suddenly it's such a bizarre thing. Once you've got this, it is flawed and it's prob- it is problematic, but it at least it gives you something to work with and the thing is justifiable in its own terms. So Ord finds the median cost of a quality worldwide is $300, but some measures are up to 10,000 times more cost effective. So he works out that if he lives on 18 grand a year, he will be able to donate enough money during his working life to save the sight of 80,000 people in developing countries. Mm. Like This seems to him the most effective use of his money. McCaskill is really inspired by this data-led method. And he actually proves toward that donating to charities who treat intestinal parasites is worth more qualities than supporting charities who prevent blindness. Mm. And the thing about this is it is not intuitive and it is not emotional. So if you want to say what the opposite of this is, it's like pensioners leaving their savings to the donkey sanctuary, right? That's exactly what it is. (laughs) Or another example, he says sending money to like uh, disaster appeals, if it's in a country like Japan in 2011 with the earthquake there, where even Japan was going, please don't send us money. We're a very wealthy country, Mm. um, is is very inefficient. Uh, So the core framework of EA is these sort of three considerations, importance, neglectedness, and tractability. So they target their donations at areas which, one, affect a large number of people, two, aren't getting enough attention already, and three, have the potential for progress. Um, Another fundamental concept we should just mention now is expected value, or EV, which is a probability calculation. So from the EEA website, it says, we don't intrinsically care about being certain we're having some impact. Saving 100 lives with 10% probability is better than saving five lives for sure. Because in the first case, we expect to save 10 lives. Now, there might well be a chance that you will save no lives. And this becomes, in the case of Sam Bankman-Fried, who's really into EV, like extremely problematic because it encourages gambling, essentially taking a punt on huge outcomes rather than spending money in the way that uh, charities do, 
which is that they, they don't want to waste money. So they're likely to be doing stuff that they know will have certain results. And you see in this, this quite modern version, relatively modern version of what utilitarianism always does to people, which is it's basically the idea that morality is kind of mathematizable, mm. you know, you can, re you, it doesn't know what you might have the old Bentham kind of quite basic units where you can have this, which is quite a complex sort of equation of probability and, and effect. But ultimately you, you're dealing with numbers and you're dealing with sums. And once you start doing that, you're very primed to start thinking, I have the right answer. On, an, on a numerical kind of basis, whereas in fact your assumptions going into those calculations may frankly be really quite flawed indeed. I should point out that actually the EA people are aware of this. Yeah. So it, it sort of lays out the core principles. All of these lists, it says, are provisional and rely on some judgment calls. Beyond this, there are substantial disagreements between people who are involved in effective altruism. So it, it is saying, okay, this is not an ironclad rule. Toby Ord is very clear on this. He's extremely thoughtful yeah and he's going the whole point is not that this is an unbending code and actually he sort of moved away from even describing himself as utilitarian he goes we use bits of that thinking but that's not what this is and you're always kind of having to nuance it so a lot of the problems you're talking about these kind of like reductio ad absurdum things the people involved in ea are aware of them I don't think that there's a single critique that we'll make during the course of this program that they haven't talked to death. Because these kind of guys, I mean, this is not like Jordan Peterson no. talking about communism. You no. know what I mean? Like, th these are people who actually just quite like the, they like the argument. And in fact, most, mostly what you hear about the culture is it's this kind of intellectual, kind of gladiatorial, you know, oh, oh, the yeah. problem here is that, and probably sort of like quite passive aggressive emails on methodological flaws. <laughs> so, you know, all of this is part of a, of a really quite vivacious intellectual culture. The, nothing that we're saying would be surprising to someone who signed up to this stuff. In 2009, McCaskill Ord and Ord's wife Bernadette co-found Giving What We Can to encourage people to dedicate 10% of their income to good causes. It's since raised about $3 billion. McCaskill later also launches 80,000 hours, that being the length of the average working life, which advises people how best to do good in their careers. Now, if someone wants to save lives, should you become a doctor, aid worker or something, or a hedge fund manager and give away millions? And their argument is like, well, you'll have more money to give away, so that will be better. Plus, I guess there'll always be doctors and aid workers, but there won't always be like altruistic bankers. So this is called earning to give. And this becomes quite a problematic concept in practice, even though you can, again, you can see the logic of it. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you had a lot of people working in high finance who were giving away millions, tens, millions, yeah, billions even. And yet this, of course, means, it reminds me of the uh, Peter Manson quote about yeah. intensely relaxed about people getting filthy rich, right? It's exactly what I've got in my really? notes. Yeah, really? It was just Peter Manson all over it. You, and it's, it feels like a really similar moral calculation yeah. to the one that New Labour makes. Let them do what they want. We'll take that money. We'll put it towards other people. But then what do you not have? Like much of a critical assessment about how people make lots of money. You know, in Labour's case, that's looking at, well, what are these guys actually doing with these securities right, over yeah, there yeah, that are going yeah. to bottom us out? And in this case, it feels like Sam Bankman-Fried himself starts to fall into that similar kind of securities category. Uh, in 2012, McCaskill and Ord formed the Centre for Effective Altruism in Oxford. Uh, now, they're not the only people thinking like this. There are other organizations like Open Philanthropy, run by Facebook co-founder Duskin Moskowitz and his wife, Carrie Tuna. Um, Skype co-founder Jan Tallinn. 
uh, is really into this. But McCaskill and Ord are the most successful at building a movement which becomes a little bit, little bit culty. You know, they work together, they hang out together, they date each other. Um, Larissa Hesketh Rowe, former CEO of the Centre, told Sophie McBain in The New Statesman, it could be hard to raise concerns and criticise decisions in a community so focused on intellect and impact. It can be easy to feel that if something raises alarm bells to you but no one else, maybe that's because you're not smart enough or dedicated enough. In reality, the community, like any other, has blind spots. And when you see some of the people that it appeals to, lots of EAs are obsessed with their IQs, mm. something we mentioned in the Never a great eugenics episode. And they're sort of, well, they believe that ultra-rational freedom from cognitive bias. So you get the, the, the rationalist community, which people might be aware of around Slate Star Codex and Less Wrong um, websites. Uh, a lot of them, it turns out, felt quite alienated and misunderstood as young people, like that they saw the world differently. And again, this idea that you are the most clear-sighted, the most intelligent, the most rational, and everybody is running around from crying and giving money to donkeys, yeah. uh, can again lead you to some weird places, as does the insistence on sort of out-of-the-box thinking. Because McCaskill's argument in his second book, it's also on the website, is that because the consensus has been wrong before, i.e. like believing the sun goes around the earth, believing that slavery was morally fine, mm. um, you can't look around and base the right thing to do on what everybody else thinks is the right thing to do. So you have to consider unusual ideas, and philosophers love to do that anyway. Again, in theory, like true, often the maverick outlying idea turns out to be the new consensus, but you have to be extremely good at filtering those ideas. And so it's, 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 it's none of these things are bad in themselves. And yet you can see the dangers inherent in them. I think it, that opposition to intuition can become kind of an all-encompassing approach to life. And they're not wrong necessarily to have it. They're not wrong about slavery. Like historically, if we went back a few hundred years, people were not arguing about slavery on a like a rational. A lot of the time, the arguments that you see from people like Carlyle are, well, it's just this is just so counterintuitive. How could you possibly think we get rid of slavery? Right, you know, right, it speaks right. against the human bosom. You know, we all know this is natural, right? And so to to do that is to try and be objective about the world around you and will make you unpopular, and you'll very quickly start to self-define. I think by being that type of person. Uh, crucial also to note that it is, it's it's really sort of apolitical, or they see it as such. It mm. is neither left nor right wing. And one of the criticisms, of course, is that it, it is a sort of benevolent capitalism. It's technocratic. It doesn't seek to change the status quo. It just seeks to make rich people nicer. Yeah. Which is not a new criticism. I mean, that indeed has been the criticism of charity in the past. You're just expecting rich people to be nicer. Yeah. But that's really quite important to them that, that they don't align themselves on the spectrum. I've read this book that critiqued the movement called The Good It Promises, The Harm It Does, which is all kind of radical leftist sort of critique. And a lot of it was in that sort of, which was sort of quite annoying, really, which is, it was basically this sort of thing of like, well, you haven't fixed capitalism, so I don't see why you should be talking about how to make donations more effective. And I wonder where the truth of this is. 
Because there's t- there's two things that we've mentioned. The first one is they're intensely relaxed about people getting filthy rich as long as they give it away. And they're not that interested in the morality and the ethics of people's work yeah. in and of itself. Yeah, they're yeah. interested in how much it fulfills you as an individual, but the the actual structural consequences of it, especially how much that might affect inequality, there's not a lot of chat about it. There's some, but there there's... are some exceptions. I think that they, the EA people say, for example, that working for fossil fuel company, the harm you do outweighs the good that your donations could do. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if like, go be an arms dealer. I think that's 100% right. And I think we we should also say that there's nothing you can say about them that won't have been covered by one of them somewhere. However, broadly, when you look at the literature, there's almost nothing about that. Whereas there's an awful lot about how do you make more money to give it away? What should you be looking for personally in your working life in order to be as successful as humanly possible so that you can give it away? Then there's a second position, which is, well, you're not really critical of capitalism. And the truth is they're kind of not. Like this is is, a way of doing things that exists within the current power structures and financial systems that we have and tries to do as much good as it can in that tone. So, I mean, that always seems sort of fine to me. And um, briefly, what did you make of McCaskill's first book, Do Good Better? It's extremely compelling. I think it's broadly very convincing. Um, he, He does utilitarianism very elegantly and without really using many of the words. He makes the case for anyone that basically just thinks, I want to know that the money that I'm putting in there is going to be as effective as possible strongly. And he kind of lights that fire in you of, I should actually be a better person. I should be more worried about this stuff rather than how am I going to get a nicer jacket? So enter Sam Bankman Freed. Mainly taken information from two very recent books, A Number Go Up by Zeke Foe, and Going Infinite by Michael Lewis. So we'll call him SBF for short. Born in 92, he's actually been raised as a consequentialist by two Stanford law professors. When he's studying physics at MIT, he's a utilitarian, a vegan, a massive nerd, although he doesn't like books or art or travel or religion Mm. or politics. But he does love maths and games, which is nice. Um, 2012, he goes to a talk by McCaskill, has lunch with him, and they really click. McCaskill describes him in an email afterwards as serious, dedicated, and committed to doing good and seems really smart and sensible too. Put a pin in that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So McCaskill really sells SPF on the idea of earning to give. So he starts working at a trading firm called Jane Street Capital, claims to donate half his income to animal welfare, which is his main issue and EA causes. But he thinks that he's being too cautious and he's not maximizing his expected value. So therefore he should start taking bigger risks. He also suffers, we're saying, from chronic depression. Um, there's, there's, There's a lot of sort of issues there which contribute to his sense of like, I'm not doing enough. It's quite hard to read profiles of him, I found, without wanting to do armchair diagnoses as to what's the matter. In 2017, he quits Jane Street, spots an opportunity, the cryptocurrency boom. So Tara McCauley, the CEO of the Center for Effective Altruism California branch, which where he works for a very short time, I think, shows him how crypto trading works. And he's like, well, this seems quite simple. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of some, some opportunities that have not been exploited. So the two of them launch Alameda Research, a crypto trading firm in 2017. And all the other uh, leading figures, programmers and traders are also EAs. That is absolutely fundamental. 
And Alameda works out how to exploit differences in the price of Bitcoin on Asian exchanges. It's a, it's a quite, quite sort of, it's both simple and complicated. And they do quite well. And this is the period of the crypto boom, where like the, the value of Bitcoin shoots up, the volume of trading shoots up. Now, a bit of a red flag here. Within a year, his entire management team, including co-founder Tara McCauley, thinks he's either dishonest or incompetent and quits, <laughs> along with half the staff. But SPF keeps going and uh, makes a lot of money. In 2019, he founds his own crypto exchange. Okay, so one is just trading and one is an exchange for lots of traders mm -hmm. called FTX. It's based first in Hong Kong, then later in the Bahamas, because what it offers is not, it's not technically legal in the US. Right. This yeah. is a little bit tricky. Based in the Bahamas is always a sign that things are about to go terribly <laughs> yeah. well. Um, and he convinces venture capitalists to invest vast amounts in this, which inflates the value of the company way beyond, it seems, what it was worth and his own value. Mm. So at his peak... So around his 29th birthday, he's worth $22.5 billion, <laughs> the world's richest person under 30. Among his cunning ideas is paying Donald Trump not to run for president again mm. and uh, paying off the Bahamas' entire national debt of $9 billion. <laughs> this is just him, like, spitballing. Uh, and EA is fundamental. So Nishad Singh... One of the leading programmers says of FTX and Alameda, this thing couldn't have taken off without EA. All the employees, all the funding, everything was EA to start with. Now, people probably know a little bit about, about SBF's sort of, you know, presentation as this sort of, you know, distractible schlub who wears baggy shorts and sleeps on a beanbag and, and so on. Um, and he actually said he thought it was negative EV uh, for him to cut his hair because <laughs> he thought... The, the sort of wackier he looked, uh -huh. the more people would just go, well, I guess he knows what he's doing. Right. Which seems to work. I mean, I might think maybe he doesn't know what he's doing <laughs> if he forgets to wear shoes. But I mean, I recommend despite that, well, I mean, their length, the length of the 80,000 hours EA podcast is outrageous. Considering that you're meant to be maximizing your time. These are like three, four hour interviews. Again. <gasps> Now, what the but, fuck is it with why, why is everything so long now? No, I don't know. This is why we keep it short. Uh, but I do recommend there is a, a very good interview with Toby Ord um, from this year. And there's a really interesting interview with SBF from last year before it all went tits up. Right. Which now comes with a disclaimer at the top, obviously. Right. Um, and you're listening What's to... What's the disclaimer? Oh, by the way, he turned out to be... Oh, no, no. But it's anguished being EAs. Uh -huh. It's like, oh, my God, I should have asked him this. And I feel like an idiot. But we think we shouldn't we shouldn't delete it because it's historical. Right, record. right. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. And he does come across as quite sincere and charming and bright and a bit eccentric. And, and, and like you can kind of sit just listening to him talk, even if you just listen to him for 10 minutes. You can sort of see why he managed to kind of convince people that he was he was up to something. So he starts spending like mad money. And some of it is just like rich person money. <laughs> so Larry David got $10 million for an advert that broadcast during the Super Bowl for FTX. Um, they paid $135 million for the naming rights for a sports arena. Mm. So doing a lot of sort of promo. but mm. And they're giving money away and... SBF says ultimately he wants to uh, donate a billion dollars a year. But this is where the kind of earning to give plus expected value mm. means that you just take risks and more and more risks because the chance of having a squillion dollars 
and being able to not just give it away to the mosquito nets and stuff, literally fund pandemic prevention or AI safety through private organizations is very, very tempting. So it's like the, it's the most hyperbolic version of EA, which is very different from William McCaskill sneaking a tinny into the pub. I wonder if anyone's done the risk assessment in these circles of what if as I start becoming really quite sickeningly rich, it just turns out that I quite like this stuff and don't want to give my money away. But he didn't really. That was the weird thing. He had a very nice house in the Bahamas, Mm -hmm. very expensive house. But he wasn't buying like cars and clothes. He dressed like shit. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm not aware of him actually secretly spending loads of money on like cool gold shit. Right, right. Like he wasn't really spending on himself. Where he was spending it, we will find out. Not always wisely. Um, But we should probably put, we're going to put a pin in SBF here. (laughs) He's doing brilliantly. Well done. (laughs) You'll be pleased to hear. At this point. And then talk about the long-termist era. Ah. So William McCaskill, in his book, What We Owe the Future, describes long-termism as a moral revolution, which is both radical and very simple. As he puts it, distance in time is like distance in space. People matter even if they live thousands of miles away. Likewise, they matter even if they live thousands of years hence. So if you feel responsible for the life of a child in Malawi, you should also feel responsible for a child in the year 5000. Now, this gets tied up with the study of existential risk. There's a very good book about existential risk um, by Toby Ord called The Precipice, in which uh, Matt's brain again, he sort of crunches the numbers on the on the various ways that the world could end. There's a sort of long history of this going back to the 1890s. After the Second World War, it moves from or expands out from what will happen to the sun, what about asteroids, into anthropogenic threats, atomic bomb, damage to the environment, biological weapons, rogue AI. You know, and it's saying, look, a lot of what we worry about would kill maybe a lot of the population. You don't need to kill a very big percentage of the world population for something to seem apocalyptic and awful. Yeah. What they're saying is like the difference between 99.9% of people dying and 100% dying is everything. And so you have to worry about the preservation of the human race. And in a way, this is where this sort of mania for numbers comes in again. Yeah. McCaskill calculates that if humanity were to survive for one million years at its current population size, then 80 trillion more people would be born. But if humanity manages to colonize other planets or evolve into a transhuman species, then the future population could be as large as 10 to the power of 58. Oh, I had 10 to the power of 54. So that's, I don't know how many billions of zeros that have been either added or minus. Many, 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 many zeros. So McCaskill says, we live at the very beginning of history. Therefore, any threat to humanity, however unlikely, is more important than anything else. It's EV again. Mm. If there is a half a percent likelihood of AI killing everybody on Earth and therefore jeopardizing the lives of a bazillion squillion future people, then that, the expected value is, is greater than the current population of the world, right? And that potentially leads to quite kind of painful moral conclusions, right? So here's Nick Bostrom, who's an Oxford philosopher who kind of popularized the concept, said, even if we give this 10 to the power of 54 estimate a mere 1% chance of being correct, we find that the expected value of reducing existential risk by a mere one billionth of one billionth of one percentage point is worth 100 billion times as much as 
a billion human lives, right? I mean, A, the mass right. has clearly broken, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But also, if you follow through that moral conclusion, you could, for instance, find yourself in a position of being like, well, we do get to kill this billion people who exist right now in order to make sure that we're saving 100 billion, billion, billion right. in the future. I mean, this was a significant pivot for the EAs. <laughs> yes, and for the human brain in general. Yeah. But I mean, it's been there for a while. You go back to philosophers like John Leslie, who wrote a book called The End of the World in 1996. And this is his optimistic prediction. I myself give our species up to a 70% probability of surviving the next five centuries. Mm. If it did, then it could stand quite a good chance of colonizing its entire galaxy. Derek Parfit, who along with Peter Singer was like McCaskill's key philosophical influence, wrote, what now matters most is that we avoid ending human history. Nick Bostrom, who with his book Superintelligence, really kick-started like, will AI kill us all? I mean, you mm -hmm. could say, I mean, you know, maybe we can, you know, HAL in 2001 or Terminator started that. But as a serious field of inquiry, which attracted people like Elon Musk and Bill Gates and Stephen Hawking, Nick Bostrom is the guy. He runs the Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford, uh, where Toby Ord has worked. And it's in the same building as the Centre for Effective Altruism. So, as a story, it's by the all way. all intertwined. Yeah, I mean, geographically, it's a very interesting story because this story is almost exclusively in Oxford. Yes. And then sort of tallies off into, into Silicon Valley. But, but this is a really heavily Oxford-based yeah. movement. So you could see that it was almost like inevitable that it would go down this path because of the people they were talking to and the sort of philosophical logic. McCaskill, though, takes a while to come around. He's mostly interested mm. in mosquito nets and donations. And it's actually advances in AI, which makes him finally listen to what Ord is saying. And there are real-world examples of this, for example, uh, the NASA's Space Guard program, which tracks and works out ways to deflect dangerous asteroids. Yeah. Now, it has discovered that a fatal asteroid strike is like vanishingly improbable. And yet we spend money on preventing that unlikely event. Yes. And similar, Stephen Hawking was a huge advocate for asteroid deflection and various long-termist ideas. And it also leads in another weird direction. On the one hand, it's like numbers, numbers, numbers. <laughs> On another hand, long-termists think we are living, as Derek Parfit calls it, during the hinge of history, which is quite a sort of millenarian yes. idea, like a kind of religious cult. It really is like, this is our chance in this century or the next two centuries or whatever, uh, not only to save the human race, but if we do save the human race, then we will go off and live on other planets. It's sort of this heaven or hell thing. Uh. And this political scientist called Rob Reich has said they are the secular apocalypticists of our age. The world is ending and we need a radical break with our previous practices. And he, so he thinks it's worrying in a kind of quasi-religious sense. But also, like you said, that logic, it's like, if you're thinking on that scale, then why wouldn't you give your money to something researching AI safety, why would you waste it on saving people from parasites or malaria or mm. blindness? Now, on a, on a kind of human level, you think, well, people alive now, then you, I think intuitively people think people alive now There's that word again. matter <laughs> yeah. more yeah. than people who haven't been born, right? So you can say that we talk about, you know, keeping the planet safe for future generations or whatever, but most people will feel like that the loss of a life now is more of a tragedy than if somebody in a thousand years' time is never born. And long-termism goes, no, it's 
it's sort of they are equal morally. See, I think they've gone further than that, but not morally. They've done it mathematically. They would say lives are, you know, whatever. Yeah. Equal. The trouble is, it's this kind of remorseless maths on the basis of the numbers that they've got. They've basically broken the maths, I think. If you start saying yeah, yeah. Uh, it's infinite time horizon, plus we travel to different worlds and we've invented you know, new humans in jars yeah. or whatever, then you've got these impossible numbers, which are basically infinity numbers. You know, That's essentially what they are. So then you start saying, oh, it's a very low probability, but it doesn't matter. It's a very low probability of infinity. <laughs> it's still infinity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. So suddenly the maths just breaks. You, you can't put enough on the other side of the scale enough human lives from malaria now to ever add up to the kind of infinite numbers that they have kind of sort of invented well, I've with got, a bunch I've of projections. I've got a lot of you know, respect for Toby Ord, but you know, in the precipice, he is sticking numbers like probabilities on um, within a century, will we all be killed by AI or an engineered pandemic or an asteroid or whatever? Yeah. And, and they seem quite powerful, these numbers, but it's like, well, how can you put numbers on those things? Exactly. Or is it really just like a punt? Is it sort of pseudo maths? But in the real world, the effect that this has, and McCaskill found this, is that saving the world from killer AI in the future is much more exciting to rich people, especially rich tech people, than saving lives from like malaria and poverty in the present. Mm. Because they love to talk about saving the world. Like Musk yeah. talks about saving the world. They, they love this idea. By 2022, 40% of EA funding is spent on long-termist causes, mostly AI safety. John Ellich, the political writer and kind of professional nerd, and therefore also like a listener to this show, because you were yeah, big, yeah. calls this the Batman problem. And it's basically like you sat there and you go, I've got all this money. Um, and someone's like, oh, would you like to, you know, invest it in educational programs and, you know, and it's like, you know, social health. Like, no, 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 no. I just want to invest it in this, all this weaponry so I can dress up like a bat and beat the hell out of people because it's sexy, right? Because it's cool. And I think that's a lot of it, right? There's a point where I think, I think McCaskill says about attending a panel with Elon Musk about this stuff and sort of tries to talk to yeah, him about yeah, mosquito yeah. nets. Yeah. He's like, I don't fucking want to talk about that stuff. Like, you know, yeah. I want to talk about Terminator. I want to defend, you know? I want to defend Batman here because the Joker is, is a very real threat, <laughs> not a possible future threat. And um, and I think that however much you donate to charity, you still got to stop the Joker. <laughs> but I take I take John's point. The 2024 general election will make history, not least because it's the first one a Prime Minister looks like he's actively trying to lose. Stay on top of the vote and cut through the nonsense with Oh God, What Now? The original No Bullshit Politics podcast. With me, Dorian Linsky, plus top journalists, comedians and commentators. Twice a week, we follow Rishi Sunak's doom spiral, keep a critical eye on Keir Starmer's progress, look at the big issues that will shape the vote and have a desperately needed laugh as well. We are proudly independent, so we don't have to stick to fake balance or give a weak both sides take on any issue. We can call it all as we see it, and we can swear too. So if you're looking for election coverage that captures how people really feel, try Oh God, What Now? High quality analysis, brilliant conversation and jokes twice a week, with extra special editions in the run up to the election too. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. So we return to SBF 
He was actually a long-termist before McCaskill was. He never really had that humble malaria net phase. Mm. He particularly obsessed with pandemic prevention, which, given the events of recent years, like not a bad thing to be obsessed with. He sets up the FTX Future Fund, which is headed by the long-termist philosopher Nick Bexted. But he also became, I think, the second biggest private donor to the Joe Biden campaign. And also tried to get a very strange EA candidate elected to Congress. And this is sort of taboo to a lot of EAs because you're not meant to pick political sides. It's mm. not left wing. It's not right wing. Now, SBF is going, well, I've, you know, I've run the numbers and yes. Biden is better for the world than Trump, mm. which I would not disagree with. But still, people are like, you're getting in you know, over your head here. And then Bexted was a controversial choice too. Take this for a little bit of uh, unnerving logic. So McCaskill thinks you should give money directly to the world's poorest because a dollar in their pocket will do far more good than one in yours, right? Yeah. That's one of the things they do. They literally say, give people cash. Yeah. That that will help them. Bexted once wrote that because people in rich countries are more educated and productive, then, quote, it now seems more plausible to me that saving a life in a rich country is substantially more important than saving a life in a poor country. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I see his logic, yeah. but that sounds horrifying And the same idea takes him to the opposite conclusion that McCaskill reached. And, you know, there's a very creepy version of long-termism, which I think you would maybe call the Noah's Ark version, (laughs) is that you can't prevent this apocalyptic event, but you can save some people. Who do you decide to save? Well, obviously, it's people that you think are very clever and important Mm. and probably your friends. (laughs) So... After the FTX collapse, uh, this memo came out from SBF's brother, Gabriel Bankman-Fried, who had a plan to buy the island of Nauru, which is a sovereign nation and not for sale, um, and also extremely vulnerable to climate change, in order to, quote, construct a bunker shelter that would be used for some event where 50 to 99.9% of people die to ensure that most EAs survive. (laughs) Again, I think probably not what the founders had in mind, right? (laughs) And the more wealth and power EA gets, the more unease there is. They spend £15 million on Witham Abbey, a 15th century estate near Oxford. You were fascinated by this one, Mm. weren't you? Because the argument is that nice surroundings attract richer donors and foster better ideas. I mean, there's a point with McCaskill where he says... He's always had a gap in his teeth and he was like, oh, I need to oh, fix yeah. the gap because people donate more money to people, you know, who are more conventionally attractive. And there is a point, there's a quote in the article where it, apparently like one of his mates just contacts the journalist. He's just like, look, we were just saying to him, look, mate, if you want to fix the gap in your teeth, just fix it. But <laughs> the logic is, for example, you, that if you buy an expensive suit, SBF disproves this idea because you look like a slob. But if you buy an expensive suit, you might be able to convince people to donate more. Therefore, that's worthwhile. If you take private jets, then you will save more time and maybe be able to go to more meetings. So you can really end up justifying quite luxurious stuff because you go, well, the consequence is that you end up raising more money. And so more and more, it becomes not about people with not a lot of money donating a good chunk of it. It becomes chasing billionaires. And Toby Ord in the 80,000 Hours podcast is like, this is really hard to deal with. He he, he was really worried about these donations flooding in. The Future Fund in 2022 alone 
Bear in mind, it crashed in November 2022, so we're not even talking a year. Donated $160 million to EA causes, the second largest EA donor in the world. Mm. And Ord was going, well, this was really freaking me out at the time. He was speaking after the um, scandal. And in the podcast, he quotes a line from his own book, The Precipice, about the importance of integrity. Single person acting without integrity can stain the whole cause and damage everything we hope to achieve. So that's an example of him not being like a super strict utilitarian. He was going like, it, it really does matter how you go about things. And I feel like there was unease about SPF, but nobody acted. He seemed very kind of sincere and charming. He was donating huge amounts of money. And so even despite all this dissent, he was still allowed to become almost like the face of the movement. Probably more people had heard of him the richest person in the world under 30 than had heard of William McCaskill. And for a very new and unusual and forward-looking movement, mm -hmm. it's a very old story that's being told. Yeah, it's, if you believe that your cause is wise and just and sort of watertight, then, then, then anything is justified. And there's actually a bit in the Zeke Faux book, you might remember this, where he suggests SPF, but by that logic, even a scam would be justified if the money helped more people than the scam hurt. <laughs> right, and SPF right. goes, yeah, yeah, sure, it would. But then that would sort of taint the movement and you wouldn't yeah. want to do that, which is, uh, is, is quite ironic. <laughs> I would say, can I say ironic? Uh, we cannot go into the full story of the FTX scandal. I mean, it's been covered to death. But there's a crypto crisis in the summer of 22, and SBF bails out some of the struggling currencies. Fortune magazine, which just makes a habit of putting on the cover people who are about to be, <laughs> about to become <laughs> syn synonymous with fucking disgrace, calls him crypto's white knight and the next Warren Buffett. <laughs> At which point, because of the curse of fortune, he is doomed. Uh, five months later, there's a bank run, and FTX collapses. Put very simply, um, the two companies... Alameda and FTX are meant to be distinct entities, but they're not. Turns out he's been using about $8 billion of FTX reserves. And remember, FTX is like a bank. So if you've got money with them and you go to your bank and you go, can I have my money back? Mm. They can't go, no, I'm sorry, we've spent it. Mm. Like if, a, if it's a solvent you know, bank. He's used that money to back trades by Alameda, many of which are very risky. So they can't pay out. When investors want their money back, they're like, I'm sorry, we don't have it. Mm. So the, the bankruptcy expert they bring in, you know, afterwards it's sort of dispatched to comb through the wreckage, says, never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. Fucking hell. So there was, there was no organizational structure. There were no job titles. Like, there wasn't a chief financial officer, for example. Mm. He... It was seen. <laughs> so, I, what puzzles me is I don't want to blame EA, but I don't think that without this sort of idealism and the sense of not even move fast and break things, but like this is a new way of looking at the world, that a lot more people would have gone, man, this is bullshit. Mm. Like, this isn't, it's so, the red flags, far as the eye could see, and you look back and you go, well, hang on, man, this guy just like, he doesn't look like a CEO. He hasn't appointed people properly. He doesn't seem to have any organizational structure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there was so much idealism. And therefore, there was a suspicion that he was lying all along. And it was a cover for his greed. Do you believe that? He insists, right? To Zeke Foe, he says, 
he's sincere. He says, by far the worst thing about this is it will tarnish the reputation of people who are dedicated to doing nothing but what they thought was best for the world. Which is correct. The UK Charity Commission is currently investigating the kind of umbrella organisation for EA groups mm. in the UK. I mean, it's been terrible. I mean, if you actually listen to some of these, the 80,000 Hours podcasts after the scandal, I mean, they, they are all traumatised. Really? Wow. Um, but even they, they cannot work out was he lying all along or did he just have uh, a very crude and reckless but sincere understanding of the ideas of this movement? And he just thought if he made big gambles, he could bring in big money, which he planned to give it away. And because there's no real signs of him, you know, wallowing in, you know, personal wealth and luxury, mm. I don't know the answer. It doesn't seem improbable. Like if you look throughout history, you know, it's like people when people just go sincere uh, about political columnists. Sometimes they just go, you know, sincere fanatic mm. or shameless grifter. Yeah, and sometimes you can't tell, right? Well, and sometimes someone's both. People are complicated. Yeah, and they can believe in something good, really quite genuinely. While conducting the next second, you know, all sorts of actions that you would consider selfish and morally wrong and other. People are, people are weird and messed up and they, they don't right. always fall into one of our A-B categories. And I mean, the tragic figure here, I think, is Will McCaskill, mm. who, you know, in many ways comes across as very sort of self-doubting and sincere and flexible and so on. But he had been warned several times by multiple people, including when like half the staff of Alameda walked out, you know, the SPF was was like reckless. Still, the launch of What We Owe the Future was hosted by SPF at a $438 a head vegan Oof. dinner, which looks bad. And then when Elon Musk was trying to buy Twitter, SPF offered to help, offered to be involved with funding or whatever. Okay. Uh, McCaskill texted Elon Musk last year and offered to sort of connect him, hook him up. And Musk replies, you vouch for him? Very much so, exclamation mark. McCaskill replied, very dedicated to making the long-term future of humanity go well. That was not very long ago. No. And Time magazine Charlotte Alter found a line from McCaskill's book, uh, for ironic contrast again, history is littered with people doing bad things while believing they were doing good. We should do our utmost to avoid being one of them. Hmm. Again, it's like, what well, <laughs> you'd read your own book. Mm. And yet I can't help feeling like just bad for him that he just fell for this this guy that I can't say for sure that I would have been able to see through him and go, oh, right, this guy's bad news. I mean, the funny thing about those books, right, and the profiles you read of him is that everyone feels quite seduced. There's The, the books that are coming out right now yeah, about yeah, Batman yeah. Free, to be fair, were mostly written during this period. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. feel them being kind of reverse engineered into yeah, villainy yeah, yeah. rather than yeah, yeah. what have started probably more flattering. But the authors are pretty honest that they're just like, well, you know, I found him very compelling. I think there's also this kind of view of a particular kind of genius of, oh, they can't concentrate. And especially a modern genius oh, yeah, of, oh, yeah. they do just have to play computer games all the time and they are wearing hoodies and, you know, they're kind of emotionally aloof and distant and, you know. And so all of that just plays into this sort of conception that someone would be that type of person. And I, I, I certainly don't think there's loads of errors, I think, in the content and possibly even 
in the foundations of the project intellectually, I don't think you can judge it or rule it no. out, but just simply by virtue of what took place in crypto. Because now, of course, it's in crisis. Lots of people have left, and you know, in the sense of, in the sense that it's a little bit culty. Some people really are struggling with life outside it. Thinking, right. This is where I found my moral purpose. It wow. did attract like sort of zealous idealists and some of them feel absolutely shaken and betrayed and McCaskill who was sort of trying to back away didn't want to be the leader of the movement yeah they're sort of seeing him as like a you know a failed prophet and they're asking how culpable is he and there's a great line one of former EA told the new statesman um the EA suffered from this very specific kind of greed it's greed to have more power and money behind your ideology it's philosopher's greed and I thought what must it be like if you are a philosopher who sort of creates this movement based on a particular interpretation of utilitarianism, you're from a quite normal middle-class background, you're not earning a lot of money, and then it becomes this international sensation and vast sums of money are pouring in. And this guy comes along, he seems very keen, and you, mm. you, know, you met him when he was young and he was sincere back, you know, back in 2012. And now he's one of the richest people in the world and he's offering to flood all of these issues that you really care about with cash. And also it kind of makes your idea seem not just like a perhaps an eccentric philosophical concept, but a multi-billion dollar world-changing project. Mm. All of those things are very, very seductive and not what we would traditionally think of as greed. Because greed, you normally think of, you're going to keep the money. But yeah. it's greed to sort of endorse your project and prove what a great idea it was. But that, you know, comes back to that moral drive that was there, not just in McCaskill's 2015 book, you know, do more for the world. But it's all the way back at the very beginning of this story in the 1970s with Singer. Like in that essay, Singer writes, what is the point of relating philosophy to public and personal affairs if we do not take our conclusions seriously? The philosopher who does so will have to sacrifice some of the benefits of the consumer society, but he can find compensation in the satisfaction of a way of life in which theory and practice, if not yet in harmony, are at least coming together. And like that, I think, was the drive for these guys. Like they really were committed to a set of ideas that they truly believed in and actually are still currently, I think, living by and that did lots of good for a lot of people. So, of course, you're going to think we want this to be as big as possible because every three and a half grand we can secure, yeah. we can save another human life. Well, is the comparison religion? It's not just in that more sort of negative sense of people saying that it reminded them of like, you know, millenarian prophets for the Middle right. Ages. Right. Um, but, you know, that 10% figure, that is in many religions. That is the, this is the figure of everyone should give away 10% yeah. above a certain income level. Yeah. That's a tithe. Yeah, 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 it is. To, to, to some religions to this day that they have the sense that they do it for sort of God. And so they've made, I don't know, one of you would say consequentialism or numbers, their God. And the way that the community is described and how much it hurts to, um, to leave it or to feel that the leaders have let you down does sound a lot like a church. Yeah. And so I wonder whether it is on one level a secular religion, even though it presents as ultra-rational and led by nothing but data. I just want to do one last defense of these guys. Um, 
I, I think any time you go into that kind of into morality with this, we will just adopt a system and apply it no matter what on either side of whatever. You will always be a freak. You will be because you're going to follow conclusions that seem so profoundly counterintuitive to people. And I don't think it's sensible or right to take one of those systems and pursue it, whether it's deontology or utilitarianism or anything else. I think it always drives people completely mad. However, you do sometimes kind of need the freaks. You need people to be thinking really systematically about shit and not just in this really yeah. easy, intuitive, I'm sat in the pub, it stands to reason kind of way, which is basically what the rest of us do when it comes to what is right or wrong. You need people to just be fully committed. And in this case as well, with the additional benefit of bringing what I think are really quite rigorous analytical minds to a part of society that is usually dominated by sentiment you know, and emotions and, and sort of good yeah. common feeling, but without the rigor that you would necessarily want. And so for that, it, despite all the mistakes, and not just the mistakes here, but, you know, in the morality of what goes on with crypto, but also the, the, what I think is the mistake in, in the maths and the kind of numbers that are being banded around, despite all of that, I find it impossible to not think quite warmly of them. Because what I worried about, I think, was that some people would just think that they weren't familiar with it, would think a bunch of sanctimonious eggheads got fleeced by uh, a con man <laughs> with no shoes on. Uh, and, and obviously there's a lot more to it than that. And there's a lot more to to respect and to, and to empathize with in this movement. Do you think that it can recover from the fact that its introduction to an awful lot of people has been through Sam Bankman-Fried? Do you think that there's enough sort of juice in this idea that this will be seen as a very unfortunate episode rather than this discrediting killer? My assessment, and I don't know whether this is right, because unlike these guys, I have very little confidence in my abilities to assess what goes on in the future. Put a percentage on it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Put a fucking number on it, you, you coward. What's expected value? <laughs> Is that I think you'll probably see something that's a bit like sort of another, let's do another metaphor using uh, new labor, sort of what Blair does with the Labour Party. It's just that like we can extract this bit, it's a bit toxic, right. extract this bit a bit. I think all the long term stuff will go, even though there's some validity to what they're saying. I mean, you can make the case for some of this stuff. You know, most of that will go. But what you'll find is, I think, that there's a really seductive idea that people do want to do good. They do want some real reassurance about the efficacy of the donations that they're making. And they're looking for the people who can offer a guide to where their money will be most effective. And that part is so attractive and indeed such a good idea in and of itself that it is not going anywhere. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Origin Story, the finale 
of season four. I need to do a quick thank you to a couple of people who helped me out with this episode. One of them is Tom Chivers from The Studies Show podcast, and the other especially is to Toby Buckle from the Political Philosophy podcast, uh, which incidentally is by far the best podcast on political philosophy. If any of Except the this of, one. I don't, I don't know if we would quite <laughs> find ourselves in that category, but who knows? Um, if, if, the, if those kind of ideas are interesting to you, I would strongly advise you go check that out. You can see all of our sources in the show notes and uh, we will be discussing them in the extra bit for Patreon backers, which we've really been enjoying. It's a nice bit of bonus material and we really get to tuck into the research process and recommend uh, sources that you can pursue if you want to explore these ideas more. We could not do all that research without the support of the Patreon backers. Yeah, and to be clear, I mean, the bits that we go in between seasons are the bits where we're most grateful for the Patreon support. Because as you can tell by the content of these podcasts, we are not just knocking these out in the weeks we have in between recordings. We basically need the head start of the months that we take off just to build up the reading so that we can get all of this stuff done. So it's particularly in this period where we're not releasing normal episodes. Thank you very much, patrons, for sticking with us. We will, as ever, be coming out with the mini episodes for patrons only starting, I guess, in the new year. Um, And also the, the Zoom live shows where we just do a debrief on the season as a whole. Lots of fun stuff. If you would like to back us, you can go to patreon.com slash originstorypod. And there's actually a very nice community on the Patreon page of people uh, discussing, you know, John Maynard Keynes and zombies. Uh, you also get every episode a week in advance and opportunities for merchandise and early ticket access and all kinds of goodies. Uh, thank you so much. It's been very enjoyable. Cheers, guys. We will be back with season five. Fuck me. <laughs> insane I feel like we only just started doing this thing it was apparently season 5 in the new year Merry Christmas I guess Merry Christmas Origin Story season 4 is written and presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky the lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff and the audio producer was me Simon Williams the group editor is Andrew Harrison music is by Jade Bailey and art direction is by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production. <laughs>